Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues. And I have conversations with foreign policy thought leaders who discuss their life, career, and the big events that shape their worldview. My guest today, Michelle Mays, is a nurse with Doctors Without Borders, better known, of course, as MSF. She's worked in conflict zones, post-conflict zones, and generally very intense situations around the world to deliver health care and other services to vulnerable people. MSF has a reputation in the humanitarian community for being the first to arrive and the last to leave, oftentimes very dangerous situations. And it's been in the news recently for the fact that hospitals have been bombed in Yemen by Saudi forces and in Afghanistan by American forces. Michelle started her career as a nurse in Baltimore with an itch to work globally, and we discussed some of her deployments in recent years, including to Haiti immediately after the earthquake and to a remote part of India. We kick off discussing her most recent deployment to South Sudan. This is a great conversation with a global humanitarian worker, and I've always wanted to speak with someone from MSF, and I'm so glad to have Nurse Michelle Mays on the line. As always, if you are new to the podcast, welcome. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to check out our archives, get in touch with me, recommend someone that you think I should interview for the podcast, and in general, let me know what's on your mind. And now here is Michelle Mays of MSF. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. So I was working in Benchu in the Protection of Civilians Camp, which is basically a camp for displaced persons in South Sudan. The UN had had a base there in Benchu for many years, and when fighting broke out at the end of 2013 and in Benchu beginning of 2014, people fled to the UN base for protection, which basically grew very, very big, very fast into this large camp, which today is around 120,000 people. And that actually happened throughout uh, South Sudan at the start of the crisis, where people fled to UN peacekeeping bases around the country. Is that right? Yes, exactly. Exactly. So these, which is, it's, I mean, it's, uh, it's good that the UN is there to provide protection, but obviously when you have thousands and tens of thousands of people fleeing in a very short period of time to one location where there is no housing, no water and sanitation, no health facilities, no nothing. Um, That creates quite a big emergency, which it really was at the beginning of the crisis. And um, over the past two years, they've been able to really restructure the camp and do proper site planning and uh, set up proper water and sanitation facilities, but it was really a big struggle. And I think as well, the the area around the UN 
base is not necessarily the most ideal location for a, uh, an IDP camp. So if, if we were to choose where to put it, we wouldn't have necessarily put it there. But that's, you know, where people went. And it was really impossible to move that many people somewhere else. So there were quite some huge humanitarian challenges to overcome and still ongoing, though they have made really, really amazing progress. Um, in the beginning, MSF was doing any number of things. We did a lot of water and sanitation, which is a bit non-traditional for us, but something that we've been doing more and more of. What does that mean? Um, like building, digging wells and, and building latrines? Yeah, exactly. So we had a, a water treatment facility that was treating water from the swamp next to the camp and then pumping it and treating it and then delivering it to the camp, um, as well as digging latrines and boreholes and things like this. Um, and then we have a, a hospital. So we're doing inpatient care, secondary health care, where we have an emergency room and maternity and an isolation unit because we have TB patients and we have some cases of hepatitis E and even measles and things like this that you have, you can have in a community, but can be quite dangerous, Wait, obviously, e? in a camp setting. Yes, hepatitis E. I don't think I've ever e. even heard of hepatitis <laughs> E. I didn't know it went down that far in the alphabet. It does go that down that far in the alphabet. Um, and it is something that is, transmitted uh like it, it's basically uh, uh like similar to to cholera transmitted like fecal oral so if you have poor sanitation and people aren't washing their hands and people aren't using latrines and whatnot and these and you know the 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 infection can be passed on uh, very easily and very quickly. So that was something that was able to be contained, but we had some cases of it. In Maban um back in it would have been, what, 2012, 2013, um, during the, the refugee crisis there in the north of South Sudan. They had a huge hepatitis E outbreak. So there was still quite some, I think, humanitarian PTSD, shall I call it, on behalf of the humanitarian community. So when people see cases of hepatitis E, everyone really freaks out for good reason, because it was quite bad in Maban. Um, but this time, thankfully, it, it, it was not quite so severe. Um, but still, we need to have be able to isolate these cases and track them and do all the kinds of public health stuff that we do uh, for communicable diseases like this. Um, and then also in our hospital, so I said emergency room and isolation, maternity. We had uh, inpatient nutrition uh, wards. We had surgical capacity. So we were basically the only surgical facility for the entire camp as well as for Unity State, which is the state that Benchu is is located in. So, and how many people are you talking about? Like, were in your area of service? Well, the camp itself, when I was there, was around a hundred thousand. It's now around a hundred and twenty thousand. Um, and then in the surrounding area, it's a good question how many people were there because. When the violence first broke out, people fled. And actually, earlier in 2015, I was in Ethiopia working on the South Sudan border in refugee camps um, where South Sudanese had fled into Ethiopia. And there were some people who had come as far as Benchu. So I'm, I'm not sure that we really know super, super well how many people are left necessarily in some of these areas because so many people moved around and, and fled, but at least for, for Benchu town itself. And then for, um, for the, the protection of civilians camp, we were, we were essentially the, the referral hospital. I mean, I have to imagine that like demand for health services from a hospital like that probably exceeds the capacity to deliver. Uh, is, is that true? Is that, is that correct? I mean, are you, do you have to, out of necessity, just like turn people away? No, 
Um, thankfully, no, we, we, we don't. I mean, if someone really, if someone needs to be hospitalized, we hospitalize them. It doesn't mean that we don't sometimes have overcrowded patient wards and things and have to move people around and be very creative, especially there was a huge, huge, huge uh, peak of malaria. We had just astronomical malaria numbers for several months um, and patients coming in quite late, very difficult to save, a lot of mortality, really, really unfortunate. And it just took us, you know, all of us, I speak as us, as the humanitarian community, some time to really get on top of that because it was just daunting. Um, and that was really difficult, especially with the young kids and stuff. Um, and they would just get really sick really fast. And if they didn't come in within the right timing, then sometimes it was too late and that was really hard. But even with that, you know, and having just an overwhelming number of patients in the hospital. I mean, we have to be creative and we set up new tents and we squeeze people in. And I mean, that's, that's our world. That's what we, that's what we do. So is there, um, I've, I've always wondered this of, of, of medical professionals that are working in like resource strapped settings and, and are working sort of in, in, you know, the, the, the field as it were, mm. um, is, is there like any particular piece of equipment or, functionality that like you wish you had that you would have if you're, you know, back in Baltimore or DC or something like that, but you just like don't have at your disposal. Um, that, that just like particularly frustrating or you ever like throw up your hand and say, I wish I had this. I think every medical professional has their item. Um, what's yours? That's such a good question because I, so the last couple of years I've worked much more in a coordination position rather than doing hands-on nursing care. So I, I, I have not thought about that in a while, but I, I mean, every mission, I think there's always something and I'm trying to think in South Sudan, if I, if I would have, have had something in particular and nothing, nothing is coming to mind, but I mean, you know, I, I often talk to teams or my teams in the field or people coming back from, from missions. And, um, they will say like, if only we had an ultrasound or if only we had, you know, surgeons will say like this particular instrument, um, which is just, I mean, it becomes really difficult when you, you know, you have medical workers constantly coming and going and turning over and everyone has their, you know, particular favorite tool, which we, you know, we just can't accommodate that for everybody, unfortunately, but that's where like, you know, the, the key, uh, I guess, characteristic or skill that we look for in medical workers is people who are able to make it work anyway um, and people who have the, uh, the flexibility and, yeah, the adaptability to these different situations. So what was your particular role then in, in Benchu? So I was the project coordinator. So I was basically the the person overseeing all the MSF activities within the the POC, the Protection of Civilians Camp. Um, and so I I supervised the logistical staff and the water and sanitation team and the medical team and the the administrative team who do all of our human resources and finance and and whatnot. So I'm kind of the overall coordinator and then like the representative of MSF to the camp authorities and to the local authorities in the community. So MSF is sort of famous for kind of being the last to pull out when situations get hairy. Mm-hmm. Um, did you, I mean, did you, was, was your staff under any sort of security threat uh, while working in South Sudan? My team in the POC was not because, you know, the POC is really, a, it's a, it's a, it's protected by UN peacekeepers. So it's quite a 
comparatively, it's quite a safe, a safe place to be. Um, we have had other issues in other parts of South Sudan, um, in Southern Unity State. So U- Unity State is where Bentu is located. In Southern Unity State, we have we had been working in a place called Lair for about 30 years. And that hospital was looted numerous times and the town was attacked numerous times. We had to evacuate our teams numerous times. Um, and that that was quite difficult. Thankfully, uh, now we've been able to restart some activities in that area and, and things are, are a bit, a bit better. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the, the situation in the, the POC versus other areas of South Sudan is quite different. Um, so, you know, I, I know you're not like an MSF spokesperson, but I, I just would love <laughs> maybe to get your, your own personal take on what seems to be a almost like relentless assault on humanitarians around the world, but MSF in particular, I mean, in, mm. in Yemen, uh, over the last few months, uh, MSF facilities have been seemingly routinely bombed. Mm. Uh, and then, of course, there was the, the tragedy in Afghanistan where yeah. the United States uh, Air Force or, or military bombed an MSF uh, facility. Like, How do you uh, process tragedies like that? How do you um, understand what's happening? And and how do you kind of come to terms with the fact that, you know, your colleagues are, are, are sort of getting attacked and getting killed around the world? I think it's it's a little bit for me personally, and I speak just from my my personal perspective. I think I have a bit of mixed feelings about it. I think that um, on the one hand, you know, of course, it's absolutely shocking and horrific that people would target or not care about it, whether or not they're bombing a hospital or a health facility. Um, at the same time, I think that it's also war and you know, having lived in several war zones and witnessed, you know, international law not being respected on any number of levels, it to you know, it's not like I don't know. I'm I, I think that there's always kind of a little bit of an ethical balance of um yeah, of course I believe that that hospitals and healthcare facilities should be protected. But I also think that, you know, we shouldn't mass rape women, you know? So I think that it's part of a huge, a huge issue of kind of the, you know, the dehumanizing effect of conflict and war and how people will be so determined about a particular, you know, that they have to win the war or they have a particular perspective so much in their mind that they, you know, any anything else is just not important, whether it's bombing a hospital or going on, uh, you know, a campaign where you're murdering people in their in in their beds and drowning children and all sorts of horrible things that you see in war. So, I I think you know f- from because I've because I've lived in so many of these places, it is it is I don't know. It's hard for me really to to process it. I think sometimes intellectually. Um, I will say, though, that, you know, hospitals and healthcare facilities are attacked all the time and the world doesn't hear about it because you don't have the luxury of having an, an international organization present. And I think that, you know, the the thing that we can do, uh, the positive thing we can do in this situation is really to highlight this issue that wouldn't necessarily be highlighted if there wasn't an international organization present. Do you think the the it's getting worse uh, in terms of, of humanitarians and MSF perhaps in particular being targeted with with more frequency, at least since you've started in in, in this field? Oh, that's such a good question. I think it's so difficult to answer. I mean, I think, of course, it feels worse because we hear more about it. Um, but I don't know. I'm not sure. I really, I, I don't know. 
Um, so I would love to learn a bit about how you got into this line of work. So, so where are you from? I am from the Maryland suburbs of Washington, D.C. Oh, which one? Uh, Montgomery County. Okay, okay. Yeah. Uh, right outside D.C.? Right outside D.C., right off the red line. Off the red line, okay. Yes. Silver Spring, that area? Exactly, okay, yeah. Okay, okay. Um, used to be my old stomping ground. I'm, I, live oh, in, nice. I live in Denver now, but was uh-huh. in, on the red, lived on the red line for, for about 10 years. Nice. Um, so how so so how do you get started in this field? So my ticket, you are a nurse, is that right? Yeah. So I'm a nurse by background. I I kind of I kind of I don't know. I was I was thinking about this because I knew you would ask me this question. It's kind of difficult for me to answer because it kind of happened organically. Um, I. I I kind of got into nursing because I, I like the idea of being a nurse and several of my friends wanted to go to nursing school. And so it just that's just well, kind of what, what ended up happening. I, I think you're pro- we're probably about the same age. Did you watch like ER, you know, back in high school? And yeah, I did. I, yeah, you know, exactly. like things, you know, things like that, putting ideas into my head about what it would be like to be a nurse, which is, you know, may or may not be accurate. Hang out with George um, Clooney and Judy Margulies. Exactly. Yeah. Who wouldn't want to do that? <laughs> um so I, so that's kind of how I, I kind of tumbled into nursing, but I, I, I also was very interested, you know, like many people are in, you know, this quote unquote, doing something international. Um, and I wasn't really sure where that would take me. And, you know, when I was in high school, I did some trips to Mexico with, you know, my, the church I grew up had a, you know, did this kind of community service type trips and I you know went to an Indian reservation in Arizona and so there was kind of this humanitarian idea or community service idea that that kind of started I think there and some interest that was peaked and um when I was in nursing school I went to India um and then went back a couple of times and was working with a a local organization um so all of those things kind of contributed, but I, I think pretty early on in nursing school, I knew that I I wasn't going to stay in a kind of traditional nursing role long term. Um, so when I when I graduated, I went to Johns Hopkins and I worked as a pediatric nurse there at Johns Hopkins Hospital. Um, and then I applied to graduate school and ended up um, getting into a program at American University that is in their uh, School of International Service in their International Peace and Conflict Resolution Department. But it was a combined degree with the School of uh, Philosophy and Religion. So my master's degree is, get this, and it's truly my master's degree, but the title is Ethics, Peace, and Global Affairs. Excellent. My friends tease me and say, it's like, it's a master's in doing good. Yeah, but it really a degree was, in hippie studies. That's what exactly. But it, it actually really was, you know, much more um, looking at some of the kind of philosophical uh, frameworks underpinning a lot of uh, different aspects of conflict and conflict resolution. So talking about things like human rights and different peace building frameworks and things like that. So it was, it was fascinating. I absolutely loved it. So you were but, at, you, you did your uh, a stint though, you said at, at Johns Hopkins at the hospital there in, in yeah, Baltimore. Exactly. So that's yeah. actually, that's a pretty tough part of town, right? Yeah, it is actually. So, I, mean, I lived there um, in nursing school because I went to university of Maryland, which is in the nursing school is in downtown Baltimore. So that was kind so, uh, of already my stomping ground. Well, what what I mean, what sort of um, patients did you see there? And, and it's, 
Sorry, it's a good yeah. question. No, it's a good question. Because, and actually, it was one of the things I really loved about working at Hopkins is um, because it's Johns Hopkins. So people will come from all over the country and all over the world to see the, you know, particular specialist in this or that. Um, and, you know, people who come from very wealthy families and from, uh, you know, very, yeah, very wealthy backgrounds and whatnot. And then you have that mixed with this inner city population. And it was, yeah, it was one of the things I, I loved about working there. You walk into the playroom and you see like the inner city kid talking to, you know, the super rich kid from Saudi Arabia together hanging out in the playroom. And it was, it was great. So we saw, you know, you'd see things that you would see in any normal pediatrics department, you know, kids coming in with, um, asthma and diabetes and things like this to people coming in for very, very specialized surgeries um, that, you know, you there's one person who does this surgery in the world and it's at Hopkins. So it's kind of an interesting contrast and I, I learned a lot from it. And so how did you then uh, end up with MSF? So, yeah, so, so, you know, when I finished my master's, it was, okay, what is a nurse with a degree in peace and conflict resolution do? Um, and I had actually kind of arrogantly thought, um, oh, MSF will be my backup. Um, I'll, I'll do something out, you know, maybe something better will come along. And uh, that, of course, did not happen because, you know, I think MSF is really high up there in terms of the the work that we do. Um, so I I applied and thankfully got in, but it kind of seemed to be an automatic choice for me. And yeah, thankfully I got in because it can not be, it's not easy to get into MSF. It's quite competitive. Well, what do they look for? Like you mentioned earlier, like flexibility and and all Mm. that, but how competitive uh, is it? I don't know what the, I should ask actually, I don't know what the current, um, acceptance rate is but when i when i applied the joke was it's harder to get into msf than it is to get into harvard it was something like less than 10 percent of the people um at that time i don't know what it is now but um uh so what do we look for what was your interview like (laughs) what was my interview like um I walked out of it. I'm not sure, you know, it's one of those blur moments of my life, but I walked out of it and called a friend and she said, okay, how did it go? I was like, I have absolutely no idea. I, I, I could have just been absolutely brilliant or just a total disaster. So, Were they like throwing medical questions at you or like what, what kind of? A little bit. Mm-hmm. I mean, what, what really what we look for is a, is a combination of really strong soft skills as well as really solid background and experience. And I think it's, um, and, and background and experience as, as a medical professional, but as well, you know, we need people who have finance background and who have human resource background and who can do logistics work and not, and not just general logistics, but who really understand supply, who really understand t- the technical side of logistics that we use in the field. So how to take care of a fleet of cars and how to manage generators and, you know, all this kind of thing. So we look for really a combination of both. Um, and the soft skills are adaptability and flexibility and really, you know, someone who's going to work well in a team. We throw people into situations that are not easy. I mean, you're you're living and working with an international team who may or may not speak very well one common language. And you're with each other all the time. You live together. You work together. They are your best friends and everything. So it's quite challenging. And people who can deal with the cross-cultural issues, not just with the, the local population that we're working with, but with each other because we're an international team. So 
Um, it's where we, we really look for a very specific and shall, shall I say unique and special people who can handle this kind of a situation. So what was the first situation you were, you were thrown into? I was a nurse supervisor in Manipur, India, which is a state on like way over in the Northeast on the Burma border. So it's much more Southeast Asian and culture than what you think, typically think of, of India. Um, and there I was managing a team of midwives as well as um, three clinics, no, four clinics, and all the clinic staff. So like the registration people and the clinic managers and the cleaners and all of that. And uh, managing our nurses who were doing primary health care as well as follow up for HIV and TB. So none of the region where that like Naxalite rebellion was going on. uh, No, that's I also worked there, but no, it's not there. Um, uh, Yeah. So I was doing stuff there that I had never done before. And what you what we look for is people who can learn how how to how to how not to sink and how to swim in a situation like that. Because there aren't many people who come, who, who exist in the world who already have it, that kind of experience. You know, it's kind of one of those things where you need experience to get experience. Like, so it's know, not exactly, but it wasn't like a, a war zone. It's just like a very resource deprived it's, situation. It's a post-conflict area. Okay. Uh, we can say there's still some number of, of rebel groups and there had been um, quite a lot of uh, conflict there back in the late nineties, early two thousands. Um, but, uh, but more post-conflict, I would say. And, and so what, what were you doing? I mean, like, what did you see? Like, what was your, do you have a moment where you realize, wow, here it is. Like I'm, I'm, I'm in it. Like I, I better, like you said, sink or swim. <laughs> so many of those moments, there was not just one. <laughs> I mean, I really thought going into it, like, oh, this is fine. I got this. Like, I can totally do this, which was really wrong on my part. I think it, it, what I always encourage people who are going on their first mission or fifth mission is you. we have to be even more open to learning than we think we do. Um, because it when as soon as we close off from that, we, we really end up shooting ourselves in the foot, I think, because I, I, our best tool is to be as prepared as possible to be unprepared and people who walk in and think like, I got this, or I totally know what I'm doing. Usually that will always backfire on you because I have, I have yet to do a a mission with MSF and I've done, I think 10 missions where I like feel like, Oh yeah, I knew how to do all of that. Like you, you always encounter things that you've never encountered before. And you are, you are pushed to the very edge of, of who you are as a professional, but I think even more so as a human being sometimes of just like being faced with your limitations. Um, So is there, I mean, can you think back and, and describe a moment where you were faced with your limitations, where where you know you, you were just like very deeply challenged and and what that's what those circumstances were? So, so, so many of them. How to pick one? Um, I mean, in my first mission, I had not really done that much management and supervision before. and and here I was managing probably around sixty or seventy people um, and just, just navigating the dynamics of that. And, you know, of course there were, you know, this is an area where you have tons of different tribes and they, none of them really like each other. So there's a lot of that dynamic really underpinning and, uh, you know, it's very pervasive in the team dynamic as well. I mean, you won't see it at the surface. Everyone works together and gets along. But then when you start 
talking to people and digging into things, there's a lot of underlying issues. And I mean, we see this in a lot of conflict and post-conflict environments. And navigating that was a lot more complicated than I think I had initially uh, anticipated. Like so you have to I, quickly learn tribal politics? Yeah. Well, you just make a lot of mistakes and have to learn from them because you think, you know, you can do one, you know, what works with one person is not going to necessarily work with someone else. And I mean, that's, that's in any management situation is like that. But especially when you're working in these really complex environments, it can be really difficult. And, you know, I worked in Congo for about 18, I did two missions back to back and it was about 18 months in Congo. And then I went to South Sudan and in Congo, I had developed, you know, lots, just habits of, you know, interacting with the people that, you know, works in that culture. And then I went to South Sudan and was interacting with people in a very similar way. And that did not go over at all in South Sudan. So I had to quickly figure out, oh, whoa, okay, I'm, I'm in a new place. I have to develop some new techniques here. And that's, I mean, but this is what we look for in people is, you know, someone who not only can be aware of that, but then can figure out how to adapt. And that's something I, I st- am still learning how to do. I don't think I've quite mastered. Yeah, I think we all are. <laughs> mm, indeed. <laughs> um, but not quite in as stressful situations, I think. Yeah, but th- yeah, and that's the other thing is that you're also, you know, not only are we in working in stressful contexts that, you know, just are by their very nature stressful, but it's also a medical environment where you're sometimes dealing with very stressful issues and very, you know, urgent issues where you have to make fast decisions and, you know, people's life and livelihood are at stake. So it, it's double trouble there. Um, so I, I guess what, what were some of like the big medical issues um, in that first deployment? You mentioned um, maternity ward. I suppose like a, a lot of what you probably have to do is just maternal and, and neonatal care or, or just natal, yeah. postnatal care. Exactly. So we were doing um, prenatal and postnatal care. And then in our clinics, we were doing deliveries um, of hopefully not uncomplicated cases, though some, from time to time we would have more complex cases that would have to be referred to the nearest hospital. Um, but the big issue was HIV and TB there. There's HIV is really huge, and one of the reasons why in that area is within the Golden Triangle, so there's quite a lot of IV drug use, um, and that is the that's the way that HIV was being transmitted, primarily transmitted, as well as being sexually transmitted, because there's also a, a pretty big sex trade there. Um, so that was quite a lot of our, our work. And then, you know, TB went hand in hand with that because mm-hmm. with HIV, people are immunosuppressed and are more susceptible to TB. So that was quite a lot of our, our the work when I was there. That's already, you know, seven years ago. But uh, that that we are continuing to do those programs now. And so where did you head next? Uh, so I, so I came home and I was like, I need a break from MSF. But when I came to the office, they asked me if I would be available for in, in case of an emergency. So I came home in late 2009 and, you know, did the holidays and whatever and moved to Brooklyn. And the day after I moved to Brooklyn, uh, I was sitting in the laundromat and breaking news, earthquake in Haiti. Yeah. So I January. headed off to Haiti the, the day after the earthquake. Was yeah. that like January 6th or something, 2010? Yeah, early something. January. I don't remember the yeah. actual date. So you headed, so, so the day after the earthquake, you headed there? I headed to, to Port-au-Prince. Unfortunately, we were part of all of the humanitarian actors who were trying to land in Port-au-Prince and couldn't. So we had ended up having to go to Dominican Republic and go by land. But, um, yeah, I was Was your there flight just like diverted? You, you left and then you just couldn't make it there? Right, exactly. Yeah. So we, we, we tried to land. I mean, we were on a small plane, um, 
but we tried to land, but yeah, unfortunately we could not. Russian so. people. So, so you landed in Dominican Republic and, and made your way to Port-au-Prince. Like what, what did you see when you first arrived? I, I mean, I hadn't been to Port-au-Prince before, so I didn't have like the before and after perspective that some other people had, but yeah, I mean, it was quite devastating. I mean, we saw everything, like everything. And, um, I mean, everything from looting as we're driving through the streets to uh, people trying to pull people out of rubble. Um, yeah, it was just absolutely surreal. Like, you know, you're looking at these things and not really believing that you're seeing what you what you see. We had a um, trauma hospital actually there in Port-au-Prince before the earthquake. And the hospital sadly collapsed in the earthquake. But across the street, we had offices and a warehouse. So we kind of made that into a makeshift hospital. And people are, people were basically being taken care of in the courtyard in front of this, this office. Um, and we were doing surgery in a shipping container and under a tarp and, and doing what we could. I mean, the, the balance in these situations and I, you know, there was quite a lot of discussion about this after specifically after the earthquake is always the ethics of, and the question of do no harm and sometimes doing, doing more in these situations where you don't have access to the same kind of facilities that you would normally can cause more harm than good. So that was always a discussion. Can you unpack that a little bit? Cause I'm, 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 not following. So, so could you give an example, I suppose? Well, like, you know, in, in, in a normal setting, you know, we have very strict standards of where we do surgery in MSF and under what circumstances and under what conditions we can do surgery. Like it has to be sterile, like that sort of thing. Exactly. It has to be very sterile, um, and, uh, and safe and you need to be able to safely provide anesthesia and all of this stuff, which, you know, when you're doing it in a shipping container under a tarp, obviously many of those aspects are compromised to say the least. So, um, this was a discussion and this is, you know, always a, a decision that we have to take, you know, when you are part of the first responses, um, you know, how safe is it to do this surgery and, uh, are would we be doing more harm than good? And Do you remember a specific case where, where you were dealing with that and, and wrestling with that question, like a specific injury? Um, I'm trying to think. Yes, there was. There was a case. You know, the surgeons were really good. I really, really respected the team of surgeons that I was with because they had some very healthy debates about it and where one surgeon would feel very comfortable and confident doing a surgery and other surgeons really questioned that decision. And they you know, they were very professional in the way that they handled it. And there was one case that one of the surgeons really wanted to operate on and one of the other surgeons really disagreed with it and felt like it was like we should let we should let her die in peace, essentially. But the the other surgeon really wanted to 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 give it a try. And I I know the patient survived at least the next couple of days and I'm not sure what happened to her ultimately, but um you know, this is these are these are the things that we're faced with in the field. Often, is like how much do you do? You're you're limited in what you can do to begin with, and then how much can you do? Because you know, transfer that person to a Western facility, and yeah, the life would easily be saved. It wouldn't even be a question of whether or not to intervene. But in these settings, sometimes we're faced with ethical dilemmas that, yeah, 
we'd rather not face these ethical dilemmas. Let me put it that way. But they are really, really challenging ones. I mean, you're you're seeing so much destruction, and now imagine a, a good deal of of death around you, and trying to do your part to to make the situation better. But like, how just like psychologically do you do you deal with with the stress and the pressure and like the devastation that you're seeing, and which seem like just like an overwhelming amount of devastation, particularly after after the the Haiti earthquake. Like, how do you deal with it, like emotionally? Such a good question. Um, how do we deal with it emotionally? I think. Or how do that, you deal with it emotionally? Well, I had to learn my own coping skills, um, and it wasn't something I started with, and it it was kind of learning through trial trial and error. Um, I need definitely need some kind of alone private time to decompress and it could be to read a book to you know look at facebook or whatever to just take myself to another place i just i need to give my brain a rest from being wherever i am some people love to you know read books about the place that they're in i do not i if i'm going to sit down and read a book i want to like read pride and prejudice or something like that like take me somewhere else take me to harry potter or something like i don't want to i i need i need to escape um and that that works really well for me um i think you know the other the other part of it i mean one one of the things i love about still working in our field projects versus working in headquarters or working in a in a capital position is when i'm having a really tough day as a coordinator I love being able to just go and walk around the hospital and remember why it is that I'm here. Um, because, and that probably comes from me, you know, my background as a nurse, because that's really where, you know, I started. And that was my first love is being with the patients. Um, but that also helps me to, to maintain my perspective. Um, so looking back at, at the Haiti response in in particular, is there, I mean, this was, you know, earthquakes, I think, um, are obviously like a lot different than like a man-made natural disaster, like the situation in South Sudan where we were talking about earlier. Um, mm. In in Haiti in particular, is there anything you think the humanitarian community could have done more or better earlier on to to provide you know more care to save more lives? Because you know it, it, the the response there has not been you know it was a, it was a huge response. Uh, but there's, you know, I think been a lot of, of I think, um, second guessing about certain decisions perhaps that were made early on. Um, so uh, I'm wondering, like, what you thought could have been done better? It's hard for me to comment on the earthquake because I was really there just for the very beginning of the intervention. So I didn't really see some of the larger effects and impacts of of some of that early decision decision making um i did go back to haiti at, at, again later that year for the beginning of the cholera epidemic and where you know after the earthquake you just saw this i mean maybe too many people just like converging on this island after following the earthquake with cholera it really took some time for other organizations to to really beef up their response and get involved. Um, and that was, that was challenging. I mean, I, 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 I remember there was another organization who was there 
working in the town I was in uh, for cholera and they were, they had a completely different mandate and we were asking them to do more to support. And they went to do an assessment of an orphanage and they came back and said, Oh, the situation there is dire. Someone should really do something. And, you know, the next day the, the director of the orphanage comes with a dead kid in the back of his car. And I just thought I couldn't understand that. I did. I didn't understand why other organizations didn't step up faster, especially in contrast to my experience after the earthquake, where like everyone and their mother was there. It really took a bit more time, and I, you know, there were days when all I could do during the cholera epidemic was run around and check people's pulses to see if they were alive, and that was, I mean, that was one of my tougher missions because it just, it was, yeah, it was horrible. It was horrible because here this thing was came so fast. And, you know, trauma is trauma. So the earthquake, people understand trauma. People understand, um, you know, a, a broken leg or someone, you know, having some kind of crush injury. That's, that's something that we're used to seeing in hospitals. But Haiti hadn't seen anything like cholera. And so the healthcare workers themselves didn't know what to do. And so it was just, it was like being hit on all sides and just trying to hold hold it together like to the point where I I I mean I I even felt like I wanted to leave like I can't do this this is too much but then I kept thinking okay but what would happen if we weren't here at least we're able to do something and you know within a matter of weeks we were able to build up our response you know remarkably fast but in those first days it was I mean those first days felt like weeks (laughs) but it was quite it was really, really, really tough. And um, yeah, I, th- those are moments I and will not forget. I, I guess it's like part of the frustration. I mean, my understanding, you know, is that uh, cholera is, is not terribly expensive to treat, not terribly like difficult to treat. True. Um, right. It's just like oral rehydration salts are, are probably the key therapy. Yes. Um, yeah. So I, I would have to imagine there's probably like a great deal of frustration here. It is like an easy, cheap thing to treat. Yet so many people are are like dying from it. Yeah. Yeah. And and the people themselves didn't understand what they were experiencing. Like, oh, I have some diarrhea. Like I must have eaten something bad. And, you know, you don't go to the hospital for diarrhea. So, you know, it wasn't until like really late in the game, often people were coming. And I mean, I have so many patient stories that I will never, ever forget um, where, you know, I, yeah, it's just really, 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 really sad. I mean, now Haiti, they know cholera very 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 well but um and then you know i worked in congo after that and you know where cholera is endemic and you know there's always a cholera epidemic or two per year and people are really used to it people understand what to do when they experience certain symptoms but in a place like haiti was at the time where they just hadn't they'd never seen anything like this before it was just absolutely devastating um so you are now back at headquarters is that right i am i'm working for now in our headquarters in new york what do you know where you're, where you're going to be headed to next? I have no idea. <laughs> but do you have that itch to like want to go out somewhere? To, always, so, you know, always, yeah. always. Yes, <laughs> whether or not it's good for my mental health, but yes, I do. Is there like a place or a part of the world that that you haven't been to that you'd like to 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 go? Not necessarily. Um, I, I've I've done quite a few places. Um, I haven't done Myanmar yet. That could be interesting. Um, it would be nice to go back to French-speaking Africa as well because I haven't done that in a couple of years. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't, it's not necessarily a place, I think, that I, 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 I'm particularly interested to go to at this point. I think it's much more the work. 
I think it's, it's, there's nothing like it. And, uh, as much as it's nice to live in New York city and have that life, um, yeah, there, there's nothing like living in the field. It's, I mean, it's, it also can be a bit soul sucking to be very frank at times. (laughs) So it's not like fun necessarily, but, um, probably a lot of adrenaline, right? There's a lot of adrenaline. And I just think the work that we do there is so unbelievably important and meaningful and impactful. I just, I, yeah, there's, I've never experienced anything like that um, with anything else. And I can't imagine experiencing anything like that with anything else. Uh, Well, Michelle, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Nurse Maze. And as always, do leave a review on iTunes if you are so moved, if you're a regular listener to the podcast. And, you know, I know I've mentioned this before, but I've had now over 95. I think this is my 97th interview. And these are generally timeless, not necessarily pegged to any news event, evergreen content, as we say in the business. So go and check out our archives. I think you'll get a lot out of it, especially if you have only recently come to the podcast. Go check out some of our previous episodes. All right, thanks for listening. Bye.